Jeremiah chapter 10. This, this week I've, I've been really pressed upon in my heart to consider how the church of Jesus Christ in these, in these last days needs to, to really shine forth as light in a very dark world. And one reason why sometimes it doesn't, well, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is that uh, Jesus mentioned it when speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about letting our light so shine before men and, uh, and not putting a bushel over our light that he's given us. So one thing that sometimes we do is we put a bushel over that light. But uh, we have to consider sometimes why that is. You know. And in going through Jeremiah chapter 10 and realizing how strongly God's word against idolatry is, it, it, uh, it awakens the thought that too often, even in the church, we, we can be blinded so much by the things that we, that we possess in our own lives that cover our, our light going out and cover our eyes going in to God's light and life. And so we have to understand that there are things that we, even we as believers in Jesus Christ need to examine ourselves with each and every day. To make sure that that light of Jesus Christ never gets covered or clouded over. And too often again, I think it is because we, we live as if Jesus isn't coming anytime soon. And one of the things that, uh, that Peter talked about was how there are a lot of people who are mocking the coming of the Lord and say, well, where's the promise of His coming? And it may be that they're believers in Jesus Christ, but they have a, they, they have a, a really poor view of, of, of eschatology, of, of the study of end-time things. There are some people today who think that Jesus has already come, if you can believe that. The Bible says very clearly when Jesus comes, he's going to, he's going to settle all accounts. I don't think all accounts have been settled yet, especially with his people Israel. And, and that's the other key factor. Is You see, we have seen Israel come into being over the last 60 years, the modern state of Israel. And some people act as if they're blind to it. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the children of Judah who are being told, you've seen God, you've seen the power of God, but now you're rejecting it. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Let's read that and then we'll pray. Hear the word of the Lord, which, or hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Interesting that he has been ministering to Judah, but now he calls him the house of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Shall we pray? Bless our time in your word this this evening, Lord. And, and truly open our eyes and our hearts, especially our hearts, to the hearing and understanding of your word. Bless us with your spirit. Grant us, Lord, wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we all are amused by creative, inventive signs read in various places and establishments. Take, for example, some of these signs. A sign on a plumber's truck. We repair what your husband fixed. Or outside of a muffler shop, no appointment necessary, we hear you coming. On the door of a plastic surgeon's office, hello, can we pick your nose? Well, you know, pick what style you want. Or at a towing, at a towing company, we don't want an arm and a leg, we want your toes. Not a good one. Sign on a maternity room door, push, push, push. Some of you ladies probably can relate to that. And then there is that billboard on the side of the road, keep your eyes on the road and stop reading these signs. And some signs are actually bloopers as those found on some churches. Outside of the church, a sign has a morning sermon, Jesus walks on water. Below that it says sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. Or the other one that I think some have wondered about, uh, Potluck Supper Sunday at 5 p.m., prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> and then there's my favorite, which is Low Self-Esteem Support Group will meet Thursday. Please use the back door. <laughs> Their esteem is low enough, and now they're told to come in through the back. And then lastly, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Did you get it? <laughs> Well, these were not the kind of signs that Jeremiah was telling the house of Israel to avoid. He was speaking to them about other kinds of signs. Signs in the heavens, which the Gentiles looked to for the sake of determining their days. What does that sound like? Astrology, horoscopes. People, even today, live by those things, don't they? They've got to get their daily horoscope to see if they need to go out the door or not. So maybe I better stay home today. It's all signs. You know, they, they, they go by the signs in the heavens. And Judah, the children of Judah, God's people, had embraced these things also. And with these signs, 
along with that hand in hand was idolatry. But how far back did this go? Did it go only to the time of the Babylonians, or I should say only to the time of the, uh, of, of the uh, Chaldeans, or you know, the, the other? Well, consider that before Abraham trusted in the one true and living God, he had been an idol worshiper himself. Joshua, in, in, in recounting the, uh, the history of, of Israel to his, uh, to his people, in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3 says, And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Naor, uh, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac, of course, along with that, came the knowledge of one true God. Now, while the Israelites were in Egypt, they were exposed to the disgusting idolatry of that nation, and some of it stayed in their minds and hearts. You see, idolatry can be exercised and, 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 uh, and, and practiced by so many people around us, even in our day and time, but it's what we let the, you know, get into our minds and into our hearts that matters here. Or whether we do or do not let it get into our minds, that matters. And while Moses was in the holy presence of God on Mount Sinai, the people with Aaron's help, Aaron being Moses' brother, they fashioned a golden calf and worshipped it. Now think of this, or think about this. They had seen the glory of God. All these people that had been with Moses coming out of Egypt, they had seen the glory of God. They had heard the voice of God and they accepted the law of God. Nonetheless, idolatry was still in their hearts. While the, um, the thought comes to mind in Psalm 106, verse 19, kind of giving us a, a picture of that very same in, uh, issue in the wilderness. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. But notice verse 20. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. I want you to notice what it says. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. You see, who was their glory? What was their glory? Their glory was God. Almighty God. The one and true living God. The God who said, I will be a pillar of fire by day, or or, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I'll be in the midst of you. I'll be in your presence. And they exchanged that glory into an image of an ox. And notice in verse 21 it says, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. And now they were commanded to separate themselves from the wicked practices of the nations uh, in the retelling of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Notice that it says in verses 1 through 5, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, 
the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me. What is God telling them? He's giving them the instruction and the warning of what is going to happen if they don't do what He says. He says, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. In other words, when I, when I send you into that land because they, they had the opportunity to know who I was, they didn't want to take it, they rejected me, you're, judge, you're part of my judgment to them. But do what I tell you. Do it as I tell you. What happened to Saul when he was commanded to destroy all of that tribe? And he doesn't. And even he was told, destroy their cattle, everything. Not one thing was to be living. And yet when Samuel arrived, what did he hear? The bleeding of sheep. The lowing of cattle. To the point that he has to tell him, Samuel has to tell Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. He says, rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. So nevertheless, here they're given the warning. Here they're given the directions from God. They increasingly imitated the pagan practices of those nations and began to worship their gods. Again, idolatry was in their hearts. Even after God had to draw that line. I talked about it on Sunday. Just draw this whole big line. You want to worship uh, the altar of that golden calf? Those who do stay over there. Those who want to be with God stay over here. And God judges them. So the prophet Jeremiah is once again calling his pagan worshiping Israelite audience the message. Or he's uh, giving them the message that God had for them. He strongly warned his people not to be followers or disciples of the Gentile nations. And especially not to let the heavenly occurrences, the heavenly phenomena that the pagans look to for guidance, frighten them. You see, the, the Gentiles regarded abnormalities in the heavens as divine signs, and they held them in awe. Especially unusual phenomena such as comets, meteors, and eclipses. You know, it's interesting that... Uh, you know, the Babylonian Empire did much in the area of astrology and, and, uh, and, and the establishment of horoscopes and all of that. This was the nation that was coming upon them, you know, to, to uh, ultimately uh, judge them and then, of course, to take them into captivity. But every nation that had any kind of looking into the stars or into the skies or into the heavens... You know, if they, you know, if they saw problems in that, you know, they became frightened of it. So they were frightened by what they saw. And God's people weren't to be frightened by those things. Why? Because the Lord God, their God, their one true God, controlled all of these things. 
And that, that is why they're told there, do not be dismayed at the sign of heaven or the signs of heaven for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. They're freaked out by them, but you don't have to be because God's in control. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, there at the beginning of the creation, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So there are signs in the heavens, certainly. But then he goes on and says, And let them be for the lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights. Notice, God is the creator of these things. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Later on in the prophecy of Habakkuk, chapter 3, two verses of Scripture, it says in verse 4, His brightness was like the light He had raised flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. So this is speaking of God's power, God's hand, God's uh, control of, of light. Verse 11 of Habakkuk 3 says, The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. God's in control of the lights in the heavens at the shining of your glittering spear. Certainly figurative language, but nonetheless, God is saying, I'm in control of all of these things. I always love the fall sky, especially at night. When down to the south, the constellation Orion rises and takes a pattern across the sky throughout that night. Summertime, usually hidden. Not on this side of the, of the world. But it's so clear, Orion, the belt of Orion. And I always think how marvelous, how wonderful God is to place stars in the sky People have used them to navigate throughout the seas or the open deserts. God's hand placing all these things for us. They don't move in a random pattern. They're always the same. From time to time, you know, if you get, you're given the opportunity, you see a, a falling star. And you wonder what God is doing but he's in total control. But you see, the worship of the Gentiles, with their idolatry, with their fear of the signs of the heavens, the worship of the Gentiles was all a vain fantasy. It was an empty delusion. Their gods were no more than pieces of wood. Look at the next phrase here in verses 3 through 5 of Jeremiah 10. For the customs of the peoples are futile or futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. They don't do evil. They don't do good. Why? Because an idol is nothing but whatever material is made of. 
The idols were works of men's hands. They were cut out of wood. They were made out of metals. And so they wouldn't fall over. And so that they wouldn't fall over, they had to be secured to the ground with hammers and nails. Boy, some some gods they were. Yeah, you know, sometimes you see people carrying, you know, statues and stuff. Let the statue, if you really, you know, let the statue do it himself. You know, have to carry it if it's... The problem with that is sometimes people venerate those statues. And that's just disobedience to God. These powerful gods couldn't speak and they couldn't walk. They had to be carried from place to place. And then the Lord likens them to a, to a stationary and immobile palm tree, it tells us here. Which, by the way, is better translated to be like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. And what does a scarecrow do? In other words, their only power was to frighten birds. That's all the power these idols had. The warning then was, they're nothing. So don't fear them. Don't worry about them. And especially, don't worship them. You see? Don't fear them. Don't worry about them. Don't worship them. They are burdens to bear rather than bearers of petitioners' burdens. They are just do-nothing gods. That's what the prophecy was saying. They're do-nothing gods. And so in verse 6 of our text it says, "...and as much as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations?" For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in, their, in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. What an interesting statement. They're altogether dull-hearted and foolish. And a wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. What good is a doctrine if it's worthless? Well, it's of no good, you see. And Jeremiah is pointing out that there is no other God like our God, and our God deserves all the honor and all the glory. But God's people were insensitive to what God was saying, and they were foolish in their actions by worshiping the works of men's hands. And here's a question. Are, are the wise of the nations foolish? Are the wise of the nations foolish? I mean, every nation has their wise men. They have their, their, their men of quote-unquote wisdom. Well, what does Paul have to say about this? He even questions it himself. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20-25. through Paul, the apostle, in the New Testament says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
And notice what he says in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. If God could be foolish, his foolishness would still be wiser than men. It's not saying that God is foolish. It's just saying if God had foolishness, his foolishness would still be wiser than men. And if God were to be weak at all, which he isn't, of course, but, if the, but even if there was, the weakness of God would still be stronger than men. We know two things. God is not foolish and God is not weak. And so is the wisdom of men foolish? Think about it. A few weeks ago, a while back, not too, you know, a couple of months ago maybe, when we were in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and Paul was among the, uh, you know, the philosophers of Athens. And you know, many of even those philosophies still uh, creep up and pop up here and there in, in, in some of the modern philosophies of today. But Paul was having to, having to deal with those particular philosophies, Epicureanism and Stoicism. And they're still around today. And people show their foolishness by standing on the wisdom of men. So think about this going all the way back to Jeremiah's time. How foolish is it to fashion gods and even their wardrobes out of even precious metals? Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, verses 9 and 10. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. Now, these are mentioned because these were places of great finds of, of pure gold and pure silver. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metal, metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They're all the work of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. So while people are are dressing up their idols, their worthless dead idols, God is still King. But Jeremiah adds another, another factor here. Another level of understanding when he says, He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble, which says God is going to be judge of the living and the dead. The nations will not be able to endure His indignation. God is going to judge. And God is always going to give opportunity for everyone to hear the truth. So if the truth is rejected, it is rejected because it is considered foolish. And the bottom line is the wisdom of the world is much more foolish. If only the people would have contemplated the glory and the majesty of the true and living God, the everlasting God who created the heavens and the earth by His word and by His power. You see, if He is rejected... If God is rejected, they will experience His wrath, which is about to be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. We've read this many times, but in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Stop there and just think, what is he saying? He is saying that the major problem in this world for the problems that, is, that every generation, every nation, every people have, the biggest problem is sin. Unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. 
So he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because God is a righteous God and cannot have this unrighteousness ever before him. And it talks about these men who suppress the truth or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress is a very interesting word because to suppress means... Uh, if, if you have a big, let's say you have a big spring, metal spring, to hold that spring down so it doesn't do its job in popping up or, 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 or helping to, uh, you know, stabilize or whatever. If you just hold it down, you're suppressing that, uh, that spring. So that's like holding down the truth in unrighteousness. So that the truth is not known. And usually that begins in their own minds and in their own hearts, but then people go around trying to suppress the truth in other people's minds and hearts. So again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And here again, what's happening in our day and time? We have so many, quote-unquote, philosophers or philosophy, uh, atheistic philosophers who are on saying there, are, there is no God, there's no proof that there's a God. Uh, just, you know, all you got to do is open your eyes. Who can create the heavens like God and make them work in the way that that everything does. Now everything's not perfect on the earth. Why? Because man has sinned, you see. There's a curse on this world. But everything that God has created, He's created good. That's what He said. It's a good thing. And, and, and to see everything in its place. And then you take the nature issue, you know, the things that God has created. You know, man, man says that you know, things are created by, by chance. Just happen, you know. And you get this kind of design by chance? I mean, to study the littlest of, of, of insects, and now we have come, uh, you know, to where we can get down to see them in, in, up close with microscopes and, and whatnot, and then we realize, how, how did that get designed that way? By chance? The odds are staggering if, if it was just done by chance. It would be impossible. For there to be a design, there has to be a designer. For there to be a creation as we see, there has to be a creator. So man is just doing what Paul is saying. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's 2008, right now, today, in every college, uh, secular college today. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image, or an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. But listen to what Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 5. 
Because here he says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, speaking to the church, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now notice verse 3 and following. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Stop right there and think about 2008 and the last, you know, in the last 20, 30 years where there's been some kind of a cultural revolution, sexual revolution. You go on and on and on and realize that what God is saying here didn't just end in Paul's time because God's truth is eternal. It, 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 it is, it's come to our time today, isn't it? These same truths. And what is man doing? Breaking every law. What are people in the church doing? Not all. But people who profess to be Christians, what are they saying? What are they doing? How are they acting? How are they being? Paul says, and these things that are mentioned here, all of them in some way have a link to idolatry. And you'll see that in just a moment. But fornication, all it is, and you know this, the act of of, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. You see, one of the problems today in distinguishing a person as a Christian as a saint, not a saint like this with a halo. What is a saint? Paul defines what a saint is. A person who is separated unto God. A Christian. We have to be different from the world. In every action, in every thought, in every word, we have to be different from the world. Different. Notice verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting. Folks, I, I've heard some Christians, when they open their mouths, and some of the things that they say, some of the words that they use, they call themselves Christians. Oh, you can't judge? Yes, I can, because this tells me that there's a standard. There's a standard. We have to watch our mouths. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. I read an interesting letter someone sent me on the internet. And, and I was trying to look at, the, trying to find the source because it was told, it was told to me that, that and maybe some of you saw this, that it was something that David Letterman had written. And uh, David Letterman is not a, a big fan of our current president, President Bush. But he writes that, you know, uh, while he is not uh, a big fan of, of the president, nonetheless, he was wondering why it was that, uh, because there is about a 31% uh, approval rating for the president at a, a given time, which means that 69% of the people are dissatisfied with things. And he happened to say, and, and there's a long list, I didn't copy it, but because uh, you know, I really want to know that he really said this. But he said, what are people, what is 69% of the people dissatisfied with? 
Are they dissatisfied with the fact that they have electricity and running water in their homes? Are they dissatisfied that they have food on the table and food in their refrigerators and and enough clothes to wear throughout the week? What are they dissatisfied with? And I just kept thinking, wow, that's an interesting insight from somebody who uh, has a a different thought of things than, than I, but than we but it makes me wonder how many Christians today who have been blessed with every good and spiritual gift and every spiritual blessing that God has given how many Christians today give thanks to God for everything they have instead of complain that they don't have or complain that something's wrong or complain that something's going on uh, different than they want it Do you imagine if all of a sudden every Christian in the world just started giving thanks and living their life the way they were supposed to, how much change there would be in the lives of others around them? Because you see, people are looking at us, folks. People are looking for hope and they need to see it in believers in Jesus Christ. But what are we showing them? Look at verse 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. You got it? See it? Idolatry. Tied into all of this. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? That ought to make people shudder. That ought to make people's knees knock together until they get on them and start asking God for forgiveness and cleansing. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The church has got to wake up. The church has got to wake up and begin to do what God has called us to do. To be light and to be salt. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. He tells us in another place, you're the salt of the earth. Salt, what are the qualities of salt? Salt gives flavor. Man, I cannot eat eggs without salt. I try to eat, oh man, give me some salt. It's like unscrew the top and just, you know, because those poor eggs need some help, man. If you can't get any chorizo, you've got to have some salt. But it doesn't just do that. It doesn't just give you flavor. Salt is also a preservative. It's applied to, it was applied then to meats to keep them preserved and fresh to be used. You didn't have to use it right away. But salt is something else. Salt is, a, is an influence in all of its characteristics. It keeps things from putrefying. It keeps you from slipping and sliding on ice. It influences the things that you eat. It's an influence, you see. 
And God has called us to be influences to the world. We cannot let the world influence us. Because the world isn't salt. The world is putrid. It's sinful. We came out of it. We should know. A.W. Tozer writes, The essence of idolatry. Think about this statement he makes. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. I thought that was an interesting quote. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. You see, the golden calf was supposed to be their impression of the God that was on Mount Sinai. It wasn't worthy of him. I hate to I hate to hear people use the term, you know, the man upstairs. Because that's not worthy of God. God is holy. And he's not only in heaven, he came down here. And upon every believer, there is a spirit of God. And we need to be, we need to be reverent. We need to be respectful. Because God is always holy, holy, holy. So it means that worshiping the creature rather than the creator, it means worshiping the gifts rather than the giver, you see. So the Apostle John ends his whole letter, uh, his, his first letter, with this simple yet profound sentence. 1 John 5.21, the last verse. He just says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That was it. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from those things that are unworthy of God. The next verse in Jeremiah, chapter 10 is the only Aramaic verse in the whole prophecy, written in the Aramaic language. One verse of all of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, verse 11. It says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Notice again, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. The gods who have not made the heavens and the earth. So all the gods of man have, has made. All the, the gods that man has fashioned. So one school of thought says that this passage was in Aramaic because it was the trade language of the merchants and the language of the people who worshipped these idols. Therefore, God spoke this warning to them in their own language. But there's another view. And I think it's the better view given by C.I. Schofield in the study notes of his study Bible. And it states, anybody have a Schofield Bible? You got it right? Yeah, you'll have it in there, see. It says this, instead of being in the Hebrew language like the rest of Jeremiah, this verse is in Aramaic, the language of the people among whom the Israelites were to dwell as captives. Jeremiah was telling them how to present their belief in God in the language spoken by the nations around them. In essence, he's preparing them. Why? Because they're going to be in captivity in Babylon. <laughs> and they're going to actually learn the language. 
And it's going to become a part of their daily language as we know when we get to Jesus' time. Why? Because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Then Schofield cites Psalm 2, verse 12 as their tools for witness. Notice it says in Psalm 2, 12, Kiss the Son, which literally means to pay homage to the Son. Worship the Son. But it says, Kiss toward the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The people are going to have to turn to God even under captivity. And begin to witness their God by worshiping Him. There are some in the church even who today believe that we are gods. Some of you have probably heard that. Maybe you went to a church and somebody told you, you know what, we're all little gods. Because that's what the Bible says, you know. And they use, they try to use this, this, the Elohim that's mentioned in, in, in the book of Psalms, you know, as, as, as uh, saying that, you know, that, that we're little gods. And the only problem is if they do the study of the whole psalm, they realize that God's really upset at those who are judges. And it's not a good thing. So I'd say, I don't want to be a God if he's going to judge me. Because didn't he say, there's nobody, no other God but me? So if you want to, be, you know, you want to make yourself a little God because you think, he's ta- you think he's talking about you, you're in trouble. Well, who teaches about being little gods? The New Age movement teaches that men are gods. We don't have to even call it little gods. But they just teach that men are, you know... Uh, that we become gods. We can be gods. So let's pay attention to what the Lord is saying here. Let's pay attention because if you think you're a god, if you call yourself a god, and you have not created the heavens and the earth like the true and living God has, you see that? Verse 11 again, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth. Well, did any of you make the heavens and the earth? Well, no. If you're a little god, then you didn't do it. Guess what? You're going to perish. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful to know? I can't, I can't understand how people can go say, we're little gods, you know. That, well, I don't want to be one because I didn't create anything. Besides, the ones who say they are little gods and they haven't created the heavens and the earth, they're going to perish from the earth and from under these heavens. I prayerfully hope that people will wise up to this lie of Satan that was started in the Garden of Eden where the serpent told Eve that she could be like God. That's where that comes from. Well, let's go on. Jeremiah 10, verse 12 and 13, it says, He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. When He utters His voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and and He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. You see, the Lord God alone is the Creator. The Lord God alone is the one who's in control of all of His creation. His power, His wisdom, His understanding were responsible for creating and establishing the universe. He alone is responsible for the rains and the storms, even the lightning on the earth. And I wonder sometimes, some guys get too close to that lightning, boom, and they say, oh, if God is in control of lightning, I think he's trying, to, he's trying to speak to some people. And others, you know, they, they get fried. That's not a pretty picture, but some of them can't help it, you know. But, well, God knows. He summons the winds from his celestial storehouse with a mere word. God just has to speak a word and things happen. 
As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, a few times the storms would come up and the, and the disciples every time would be afraid and Jesus was asleep one time and the other time he was just sitting there thinking, these guys just don't get it. I'm with them. Oh, Jesus, we're all going to die. We're perishing. All you can do is sleep. And he gets up and he says, peace, be still. And everything just calm. And, and Jesus, yeah, and Jesus loved his disciples. He, he didn't say, you bunch of idiots. He said, he said, oh, ye a little faith. He might as well said it because they were probably feeling like it. But he said, oh, you of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. When Jesus went fishing with Peter, actually, you know, Peter was the pro. Peter had all the equipment. Jesus was just a, you know, a preacher. <laughs> and Jesus tells Peter, that's over here on this side. Peter's saying, you know, Lord... Now, he doesn't say this to the Lord, but I'm sure he thought, he, I'm sure he thought it. I'm the fisherman here. I've, I know these waters. And I know that there's days when there aren't any fish. They just kind of like hide. They just don't get away, get away go wherever they want to go. So, Lord, you know, I, I, I'm the one with the, with, with the understanding here. But, you know, because you who are, are what you are and, and who you are, go ahead and put, you know, I'm going to do it. So he tells them, well, you know, Lord, I'm okay, I'm going to do it. Uh, we, we've been fishing and we didn't catch anything, but because it's you, I'm, it'll be nice to you. I'm going to put the net in the water. And then he, can't, he, he gets so much fish, he gotta, he's got to have another boat to come and help him bring it in. And this was one of the times that, 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 that Peter was fearful of Christ. Oh, God, depart. He said, Jesus, depart from me. Because he recognized the holiness of Christ. Who Jesus was. You see what we're going to learn. Is who the creator is. And who was there from the very beginning. Isaiah 40 verses 21 and 22. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. By the way, how did they know it was a circle? You know, there were some cultures that thought the earth was a square, a cube, a flat plate. You get to the end of the earth and then you just fall off. Remember the flat earth people? We go into heaven and what do we see? Wow, the earth's round. Well, the, the moon's round. <laughs> I would have figured maybe we'd have gotten it off of that. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who, stretch, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Later on in verses 25 and 26, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number, the stars, in other words. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. It's not one star missing. God even knows where the falling stars go. 
I'm missing one. Where is it? God knows where it is. You don't have to ask. So in the next passage, we see that the Lord was not the people's portion. Now we're beginning to see more of the heart of the people. Verse 14, everyone is dull-hearted, without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. For his molded image is falsehood and there's no breath in them. They're futile, futile, a work of theirs. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob, get this, right here in verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. The conclusion is that everyone who worships idols is stupid and ignorant. I'm just telling you what God said. I'm, not, you know, I'm just giving you what those words mean. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. That's what it means. Stupid and ignorant. I know some people don't like that word, but it's there. That's what it means. The idol's inability to do anything shames those who glorify them. Idols have no worth. They mock their makers by their silence. You see, that's what it says there in, in, in verses 14 and 15. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. His molded image is falsehood. There's no breath in it. So they mock their makers. Those idols mock their makers by their silence. And because they are unable to, de- uh, to defend themselves, they will perish when the true God chooses to, humil- to humiliate them. So now the portion of Jacob. Let's get to that. The portion of Jacob that is spoken of in verse verse 16 is the Lord himself. The portion of Jacob. When God gives himself to his people, how does he do it? He gives himself completely, doesn't he? God is our portion and our strength. God is our help. God is everything we need, right? So when, we, when, we, when He's our portion, He's everything we need. And so, notice, who would that then be? Who would the portion of Jacob be? When it says, the portion of Jacob is not like them, for He is the maker of all things... And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Who will that portion of Jacob be? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And how do we know? Because we need to notice that it says that he is the maker of all things. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For by him all things were created. This is speaking of Jesus here. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist or are held together. Jesus holds everything together. Because He created everything. And therefore He is the portion of Jacob. You know, for us, in our, mind, in our mindset, when we think of a portion, we only think of a piece. Would you like a portion of pie? We don't say that. It's like a piece of pie. But in essence, we're saying, would you like a portion of pie? 
Well, you know what? I would say, you bet, I'll take the whole pie. Because it is the whole thing. The portion is all of Jesus. All of Christ. All of God. So as we press on, we've got to press on quick here. But Jeremiah looks ahead and he begins to weep over the, over the judgment that is coming upon his people. Jeremiah is weeping. It, it says in verse 17, he says, Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitants of the fortress. O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. And then notice verse 19, Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say truly, this is an infirmity and I must bear it. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me. There are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains for the shepherds have become dull-hearted. What is that? Stupid. And have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come, and a great commotion out of the north country. What's coming from the north? Babylon. And a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. Seeing the impending invasion of the Babylonians and the distress it would bring, Jeremiah instructs the people to pack their bags and get ready to move because they would soon be thrown out of the land like a stone from a sling. The prophet grieved the ruin of homes and families, the forced separation of children from parents, the scattering of God's precious flock. And he cites the reason, he gives the reason. The spiritual and civil leaders of the people, the shepherds, led the people astray because they were stupid and ignorant. They were dull-hearted. They hadn't sought the Lord at all. They forsook the Lord in His covenant, so they became failures and their people scattered like sheep. Listen to the words of Ezekiel here as he speaks the word of the Lord in Ezekiel 34 verses 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. There were times when Jesus would look at the multitudes of the people and he would say, these people look like sheep without a shepherd. Because all of the religious leaders were only concerned with their own things, concerned with what they could get out of being a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, or a part of the Sanhedrin, or a priest, or a high priest. They were only concerned with what, what was in it for them. 
And Jesus knew that all along, especially when he tells them in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he gives them this long list of things that, of course, brings them to the anger so much in their hearts that they're ready now to take Jesus and execute him. A nation went into captivity because their leaders forsook the true and living God. The nations went into, or the, a nation, a nation went into captivity because their leaders forsook the true and living God. Jeremiah 10 verses 23 through 25 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. I want you to remember something. If you were here for chapter 7, remember that God had commanded Jeremiah not to pray for his people. Remember that? Well, instead he prays for himself as a representative of the people of the nation. Again, he identified with the pains of his people in verse 19. But then he confessed that people don't have the wisdom to direct their own steps in safe and successful paths. As if to be quoting from the Psalms and the Proverbs, Psalm 37 verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Proverbs 16, verse 9, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. But then Jeremiah invites the Lord to correct him, to lead him in the proper way, but to do it with justice and without undue harshness, with undue severity without undisability. If the Lord corrected him in anger, as the prophet and the people deserved, he would die. So he was probably speaking for the people now. You know, he's kind of like saying, well, Lord, you know, do this for me, but he's praying for his people. And speaking for the people as well as for himself in this prayer. So finally, the Lord's anger should find its object in the nations that did not know him and did not pray to him, but... Uh, those who did not pray to him, but devoured and consumed and and desolated God's people. Contemptible as the Jews were. Contemptible as the children of Judah were. Still, he says, Lord, let your anger be toward the nations who have devoured them and consumed them and desolated them. And of course, that goes back to the Psalms again. Psalm 79, verses 6 through 9. Pour out your wrath on the nations that that do not know you. I'm sorry, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, yeah, and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste uh, his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. So at this point... The temple sermon is now finished. It's ended. As for the results, we're going to learn that in chapter 26, that Jeremiah would be seized because of this sermon. Jeremiah would be seized and condemned to die.
Now, rather than hear and obey the true word of God, the priest would resort to murder. But instead of being killed, Jeremiah was banished from the temple. God had his hand on that. We'll see that when we get to chapter 26. How many preachers today, how many preachers would boldly preach a message they knew would result in dismissal or even death? How many in the congregation would be willing to accept that message and obey it? That comes back to the question I asked earlier about the condition of the church. When we have gotten away from God's word and we're taking surveys to see what people want rather than preach the word of God faithfully and courageously and rightly, When congregations are the ones who decide what they want to see, hear, or do, many congregations today want to be entertained. They want to have all, thing, all kinds of things going on. But they're not heeding the word of God. It's like putting our heads in the sand. I don't know about you, but when you look at the world today and the condition that it's in, and seeing the things that are happening on the other side of the world, especially in Iran, as they're building up even more, uh, not only just nuclear facilities, but today, you know, they introduced a a new rocket that can travel uh, 1,200 miles, which is just perfect for them to hit Israel, just perfect for them to hit uh, places where U.S. troops are. And that's just us. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of other conflicts. There's everything going on in Russia, and then, of course, uh, there's no real stability in, in many of the nations of Africa. There's dictators in South America. There's all kinds of things going on in every part of the world. What's happening? Are we going to fix it by the will of the flesh? Or are we going to surrender to the will of God who says, I've got my hand on things, trust me, Live for me, obey me, serve me, I will take care of you. Let me read to you the last thing I'm going to give you tonight, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I applaud you for your patience with me tonight. But 1 Peter 3, verse 13 says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. By the way, how many of our brothers and sisters in many countries today, in India especially, and in China, North Korea, are suffering for righteousness' sake? Many of them are dying for for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the cross of Christ. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify Set apart, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You see, we are to be different from this world. We are to be different. It isn't a matter of taking a person through four steps to become a Christian, have them read a prayer without one tear in their heart, and say, okay, now you're a Christian. You're doing them more damage by doing that than letting them see that they have sinned against a holy God and they need to get their lives right. And we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine them and we need to lay them before the Lord. We need to say, God, cleanse me, purify me, forgive me. Do whatever is necessary, Lord. And I can tell you this, I have no desire for, for one of you in this room, I have no desire that any of you should perish because you want to be selfish and you want to do the things you want to do. I don't desire it. I wouldn't say, and pardon my, my statement, but I wouldn't say to hell with you. I want you to go to heaven. I want you to be safe for eternity. But what are you doing about it? Because I've given you God's word. And that's what you'll hear from this pulpit every time we gather. I don't want to be like a shepherd that leaves his sheep scattered. That has blood on me. So I'm faithful. At least I'm trying to be. But you have to be faithful too. Let's pray.